0: i uh, got a few announcements I want to make while I'm thinking about them. First of all, we've got several letters over in the uh, International Mission Board, Lottie Moon, mailbox. It's right down the hall. You may want to go ahead and collect those because whatever you don't collect today, the office takes them all. And if there's any gift cards or money in there, we divide it all up. So you want to make sure to go ahead and get those. Uh, Also, uh, we... We are going back to the regular schedule next week, just in case you're curious. All the children's, youth, Sunday school classes, traditional service over here, contemporary service over there. So just be mindful of that as well uh, for next week. It is so good to see you here on uh, this official low attendance Sunday of the year. God bless you all for coming. I'm I'm just so uh, thrilled that you were here because about 15 minutes before, we had like five people here. So... Uh, like, oh, hey, wow, Uh, you know, let's, but thank you for coming. Uh, I I hope that this morning is a, a blessing to you. I've been thinking a little bit about what a wonderful church Main Street is, thinking about the year that's passed and the year that is yet to come. And one of the things that has struck me about this place is how well you're reflecting on Jesus. And I don't mean to brag on anyone other than Jesus, but the head is seen in the body. And the king is reflected by the citizens of the kingdom. And I just want you to know you're reflecting well on him. And one of the reasons I think you're reflecting so well on him is because of your embracing of a sacrificial lifestyle. So this morning, so as not to chastise at all, just to purely encourage, I want to direct your attention to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have, all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. May God bless of his word and may be seated. Now, now, I love this passage. Uh, For several reasons, but one of the reasons I love it is it starts with this crazy little word, therefore, and uh, it maybe typically isn't that big of a deal other than this is a transition in the book of Romans from chapters 1 through 11 through chapter 12 through the end of the book. And you say, why is that that big of a deal? Well, when Paul says, therefore, he is indicating if you believe and understand everything that I've written up to this point, you're going to live in a certain way. You're going to live in a certain way in accordance with all of these things that I've just been writing about. And what's he been writing about in chapters 1 through 11? He's been essentially talking about the gospel, the good news. He's been talking about sin and salvation and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and what God has done and is doing on our behalf. And so right here in this transition moment, chapter 12, verse 1, the very first word, when he says, therefore, he's saying, you're going to live in a certain way. If you believe this, if you understand this, here's how you're going to live, and how are you going to live, he boils it down to one thing. And it's a wonderful summary statement, not just chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, not just chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, but right here at the beginning of chapter 1, or chapter 12, verse 1, at the beginning of the verse, he says, you're going to live offering your bodies as living sacrifices. That's the, If you're responding to the gospel, if you see the gospel, if you see his mercy and you believe his mercy, you understand what you're seeing and you believe it, here's how you're going to live as living sacrifices. Now, what does Paul mean when he says living sacrifices? This seems kind of weird, and it's very weird. It's very rich, but it's even weirder than it appears on the surface of things. Because when Paul uses the word sacrifice, it's, it's a killing. That's the, You could translate this passage to say, present your bodies as living killings. Now, that's obviously paradoxical, and Paul is intending for it to be paradoxical paradoxical. This isn't an accident that he's saying this. Why does he say present your bodies as a living killing? Well, he's drawing a a contrast, a compare and contrast with the Old Testament sacrifices or even the sacrifices with which they would have been familiar in the Greco-Roman world. He's saying in certain respects, your life as a Christ follower is going to be like Old Testament sacrifices, those animal sacrifices, and it's going to be unlike those systems that practiced animal sacrifice. So so first off, let's just think about how is it that following Christ is unlike those ancient sacrifices. Well, for starters, as a Christian, absolutely 100% you and I are not living our lives in such a way that, that by the sacrificial life we are living, we are somehow covering for our own sins or atoning for our own guilt. In the Old Testament, and really when you look at other Uh, pagan religions that that would uh, practice animal sacrifice. The idea is that with sin, there's punishment. When you do what is wrong, there are consequences. And so as to atone or cover over your sin or your guilt, there had to be the shedding of blood. And so the shedding of the blood was was made so that you would be covered, so that you could be in a right relationship with the God or your God or gods or goddesses, whatever the case may be. But for a Christian, 100%, You and I are not doing that. We are not offering our lives as somehow atoning sacrifices or covering for ourselves so that God can say, okay, now I forgive you because you're good enough. You don't live the life that you live. I don't live the life that I live so that somehow I'm going to be accepted or somehow I'm going to make myself more, more pleasing to God so that he will accept me and let me into heaven one day when I die or however you want to work that out. What this means is, When Paul is saying, present your bodies as living sacrifices, if it's not a guilt offering, if it's not a sin offering, and it's absolutely not that in light of what has been written in the first 11 chapters, what that means is when you're presenting your body as a living sacrifice, and I'm presenting my body as a living sacrifice, it's an offering of thanks. It's a thank offering. It's not a guilt offering. It's not a sin offering. Now, the practical implication for this, for you and for me, is real simple. The practical implication is when you are living your life sacrificially, in response to the mercy that God has given, there is absolutely no room for boasting. There's no room for the building of pride. There's no room for you to say, "Well, look at what I've done in comparison to this other person," because you know I, I did—I I actually you know gave more money, or I gave more time, or I've just been more consistent in my walk with Jesus. And so you know, look at me versus look at them. If that's your response, you are looking at the offering of your body as a living sacrifice in entirely the wrong way. If you're comparing yourself to other people and you're, and you're having some pride because of this, you are not looking at the offering of your body as a, as a thank offering, but as a guilt offering or a sin offering. You're patting yourself on the back because your payment is exceeding theirs or your repayment is exceeding theirs. Or let me put it like this. Okay, Most of you, you got gifts over the holidays for Christmas. I'm, I'm hoping you got a gift. If you did not get a gift, we have one for you. Seriously, you got a gift and when you received it, you did not say, how can I ever repay you? Or how much did this cost? And then you whipped out your wallet and you gave him some cash or you wrote a check. Why did you not do that? Because it was a gift. The only gracious way to receive a gift, which is an offering of grace, is to graciously say thank you. And the more you say thank you, the more humbled you become because the more you recognize you didn't deserve this gift. You're just saying thanks. When we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, what we're doing is in a very practical way saying thanks. If in your mind you're thinking, I'm going to have to repay you for this, or I know I haven't repaid you fully and I can't ever fully repay you, but I'm going to try to repay you, you do not understand the gift. And you will grow in your pride. It's amazing how sometimes around churches, people can be religious instead of Christian. They can be very religious and not really gospel-oriented. And you see this when people start taking pride in their service as compared to the service that is rendered by other people. You're not understanding the offering. So that's one way that's different. We're not offering a guilt offering or a sin offering. We're just offering thanks to God by presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. There's another difference between following Jesus and the sacrifices that were offered in the past, in ancient days, and that is, in the past, the offering was done. I mean, you put the animal up there, killed them, it was it. It was done. You put the grain offering up there, it gets burned up, there it is. It's done. It's over. But here we're talking about a living sacrifice. It's not over. It's continual. The problem with living sacrifices is they have a tendency to jump down off the altar. And so they have to continue to get back up there and get back up there and make a continuing decision because life is ongoing. And as life is ongoing, so too our sacrifice is ongoing. You don't just say, well, I made the sacrifice and then I'm done. No, you re-up every day all the time. Those are the differences. Now, how is following Christ like those Old Testament sacrifices or those animal sacrifices of old, even in pagan religions? Well, here's how it's the same. First of all, or first of all, there, there's death that's involved. There is the embracing of death, and there's the embracing of pain because it's it's a sacrifice. It's a killing, and this embracing the death, at least the death to your own agenda, it goes on on a daily basis. It's a routine basis, as I just tried to explain. This is very much like what Jesus talks about when he tells tells the people, if anyone wants to follow after me, if anyone wants to come after me, follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's daily, at least daily, ongoing routine. Let me boil it to you, down for you like this. Okay, this is this is put negatively, but I don't know how else to to say this. You're you're not really living the Christian life if you're not slaughtering yourself daily, at least in terms of your own agenda. You're not living the Christian life unless you routinely put to death this idea that you have a right in your life to do whatever you want. You're, you're not living the Christian life if you're not routinely dying to yourself daily. That's not just Paul as if Paul is against Jesus. That's Jesus. Now, the, the sad thing, and this is why I, I want to commend you for, for living sacrificial lives, the sad thing is probably in the history of the world, there's never been a culture that is more resistant to what is central to the essence of the Christian life than the culture of which we are now part. Because you're not following Jesus if you're not routinely putting to death the illusion that your life is your own. You're not living the Christian life, you're not following after Jesus if you are not routinely putting to death the lie that your life is your own or this illusion that you're the king of the kingdom of you and not King Jesus who is the Christ. And it's real painful to do this, to on a daily, routine basis, take up your cross and follow him. It's very painful on a routine basis to take your life and put it back on the altar as a living sacrifice. And here's how it feels, kind of. Here's the bad news, the good news. It really hurts. Some of you, you do this every morning. You wake up with Jesus, so to speak, and, and you're in his word or you're in prayer, and you wake up in a bad mood. I was telling somebody earlier in the service, I generally wake up in a bad mood. It's really, and it's even worse when I'm sick. It's really true. And I know the first thing I need to do is pray or open up the Bible, even if it's just for a few verses. And here's what happens. This is the day the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad. In it. God, it's your day. It's not my day. Or, you know, i just go back to this verse. You can take up your cross and follow me. Okay, okay. My life's not my own. Or I read something in the Bible or you read something in the Bible you don't necessarily like or, or it kind of rubs you a little bit wrong or it's something that's kind of challenging to you. And in those moments at, in the morning, as you say to God, God, my life's not my own. It's yours. And, and I know this is going to be very difficult for me, but my life is yours and my agenda is not my own agenda. It's your agenda. And it's going to involve a death of sorts, and it kind of hurts. And it's crazy that way, putting yourself back on the altar every morning throughout the day, putting yourself on the altar. But here's what happens. When you really do that, when you wake up and you've got that quiet time moment or at the beginning of the year, which we're about there, you pray through some things and you go, okay, God, what in my life do I need to die to? Is it food? Is it selfishness? Is it blank whatever down the list? Do I need to die to this? Do I need to die to that? And you make that decision. And then throughout the year, you die to that on a regular basis. Here's what happens at the end of the day, at the end of the month, at the end of the year. You look back on what seemed like a death to you. And you see, that was life-giving. You look back on that dying moment and you go, wow, that that was an amazing moment of life. God wasn't asking me to be a destroyed sacrifice he was asking me to be a living sacrifice and I just emptied myself and I died in that moment and guess what happened God poured into me the life that he poured out on the cross and it was fantastic I was uh, I can't help but be struck by the testimony that that David gave I don't know was it just a week ago I guess it was just a week ago about you know making a decision to go to the mission field and then you have to re-up and then you have to re-up again and he's re-upping again and I can't tell you where he's going or he'd have to kill me And then you have to confess that. Uh, But here's the thing. You make that decision and it feels like a dying moment and you are giving up a lot. And then you look back over the last 13 years or 26 years and you recognize whatever the next 10 years or the next 13 years hold, I'm going to look back over that and I'm going to look at that moment that felt like a death and I'm going to say, "That that was life that was there. It does feel like a death but you're not destroyed in the dying. Here's the other thing that's kind of interesting about the the sacrifice. God wants everything on the altar. When Paul says, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, what what he's communicating is all of who you are needs to be on the altar. In Greco-Roman thought, the body was the least important aspect of your being. Sometimes it was just like the shell or the prison that you would be in. Paul's saying even that needs to be included, but I think what the Apostle Paul is actually communicating because of his Christian worldview is... Really, your, your heart or your soul, your psyche has no expression except what's in your body. Everything about you that's public, everything that's about you that's social, everything that's about you that's physical needs to be on that altar. God wants all of your public and social life. But more than that, he wants your inner life too. Because what happens publicly is an expression of who you are privately. And Paul really spells this out very plainly in verses 3 and in verse 2. Let me just go ahead and read these real quickly. The Apostle Paul says this: For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Excuse me. If if any of you are wondering, no, I did not take up smoking for the holidays. Uh, I've just uh, just got some allergies. What what Paul is saying is, look, you're not going to think of yourself too highly, but you're not going to think of yourself too lowly. If you have the gospel, it's going to affect your mind. You're going to have a right judgment about yourself. This is largely what he communicates also in verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It means that you're going to be thinking out the implication of the gospel. You're going to be applying internally in terms of your attitudes and the way you think and your disposition. You're going to take Romans chapters 1 through 11, everything I've just written, and, and it's going to transform your thinking. What Paul's communicating is everything about you, what's going on privately, what's going on publicly, what's going on inside, what's going on outside. Everything about you is going to be placed on the altar as a living sacrifice. And when everything is placed on the altar as a living sacrifice, the sacrifice, what feels like a death, is going to be a life, and there's going to be, there's going to be a transformation. It's going to be like resurrection. You think about this. A living sacrifice? How do I sacrifice myself? Well, what, what you do is you put yourself in a position every day or every year to experience in your life resurrection. Resurrection. But that doesn't happen if all of you is not on the altar. If all of who you are is not all on the altar, then he doesn't have all of you at all. Or put a little bit differently, some things in life are not either or. They're both and. But this is not one of those both and things. This is either or. Either you're married or you're not. How many of you here are kind of married? If you raise your hand, I will counsel with you. You're not. You're either married or you're not. He's either your husband or he's not. He's either the bridegroom and you're the bride or you're not. You're, you're either in the United States as a citizen or you're not. You're either in the borders or you're not. He's either your king or he's not. I mean, this is, you're either all on the altar or you're not. And I'm not trying to be extreme or overstated. All, all I'm saying is simply this. If you're going to be a living sacrifice, all of you have to be on the altar because if it's only a partial sacrifice, you're not on the altar. You're just leaning against it. And there's no resurrection power. There's no life. And when there's no life or resurrection power happening in you and to you and through you, then not only are you kidding yourself, but you're still remaining actually in death. Let me put it to you like this. I love this. This illustration comes from this pastor in Brazil. I don't know his name, but I, I want to give him credit. It's so good. He, he's trying to encourage his congregation to understand the necessity of a full personal response to Jesus on all levels. So here's, here's the parable. The parable goes like this There's a man who owned a house. He thought it was worth $2,000, wanted to get $2,000 for it, but he had a, a neighbor who wanted to buy the house, but the neighbor was poor. He could only afford 1000 So the original owner of the house agreed to sell the house for half price for only $1,000. With one exception, he would sell the whole house but keep one nail in the house. He was going to retain ownership of this one nail that was protruding from the interior door over the entryway. Just as you went through the house, there was a nail sticking right out. He said, I want to keep that nail. You can have the rest of the house for $1,000. The poor guy says, well, sold. I'll take it. So they do the deal. Years later, the original owner wants the house back. And the new owner says, I'm not going to sell it to you. It's my house now. So you know what the original owner does? He goes out and he finds the dead carcass of a dog and hangs it on the one nail over which he's retained ownership. And it just hangs there until the whole house has the stench of death. And the new owner has to resell to the previous owner at a price less than what the new owner paid. And the moral of the story is, When you buy a house, make sure it includes all the nails. Uh, Actually, here's here's the point. The point is, Jesus wants all of you so that at no point will the stench of death settle in over all of you. Because here's what you've probably noticed. You've probably noticed you could have 90% or even 99% of things going right in your life, but if there's that one area that you have not submitted to the Lord, it will destroy you. That one moment, that one relationship, that that one addiction will cause the stench of death to settle over all the rest of you. God wants all of you. He wants to rule all of you. Why? Because he wants to bless all of you. C.S. Lewis puts it like this in The Weight of Glory. He cannot bless us unless he has us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims all. There's no bargaining with him. That's the deal. If you believe who he is, if you believe that this is the king and he came to save all of you, if you see his mercy and you respond to his mercy accordingly, you're going to give him all of who you are so that he will bless all of who you are. Otherwise, you don't really think that he wants to bless all of you. That's why some of us are not giving him all of who we are. We're leaning against the altar. We haven't put ourselves on the altar as living sacrifices. Do you see who he is? See, this brings us back to the motivation. Okay, I've already alluded to this, but with regards to Christians, the motive for doing the good life, living the good life, it's, it's so important. It's actually critically important. In fact, if you're reading through the Bible, here's what you're going to recognize. You're going to recognize that being a Christian isn't about living a good life. It, it's not that we don't live good lives, but if you want to get right down to it, it gets down to the heart or the motivation for doing what it is that is right. And in the Bible, the motivation largely comes down to having seen something. There are lots of people who are very good people... They might be very religious, they may have other religions, they may have no religion in particular, and they live really good lives. But they lack the secret power to the consistency and durability. What is that power? Well, it's not anything special in you and in me. It's that we've seen something. It's that we trust a trustworthy God. It's that we have faith in a faithful Lord. They're really, really good people. In in fact, I just told you, like, I I wake up in bad moods all the time. There are probably lots of people who, in their very nature, they wake up in a great mood. There are some people that they they live very generous and consistent lives, and they're very charitable. And on a certain level, we don't even care about the motives because charity is charity. The world's a much better, more wonderful, more livable place because people, for whatever motivation, choose to be generous and charitable and promise-keeping. It's just that as believers, it's not just that we do what is right. There's a particular motive that increases the durability and increases the sustainability of the good, and that is we've seen something. We have faith, but it's not because our faith is so amazing and that we're better than other people. It's that we have faith in some, someone that we've seen. Listen, if you're not a Christian, why would you live a good life? Let me just give you three things. One might be custom. You just do what's right because you were raised that way. Because you're a Jones or a Smith, or that's the way we do it in Texas. Fantastic. I'm glad you've got that good upbringing. Some of us, we do what's good because we've calculated. We've done the prudence math, and we just figure what goes around comes around. You smile. The world smiles back at you. This is great. And it just makes the rising tide lifts all ships. What you give comes back to you, and you've just done the calculation. Good for you. You're smart. Some people do it because they're very religious, and that is you're afraid of God in the worst of ways. Like, if I don't do what is right, God's going to get me, he's going to kill me, he's going to punish me, he's after me. And there's a certain motive in all of those things that that does get people to do what's right. The problem is, all three of those motives, while they're helpful, aren't really that sustaining. If you say, all I have is custom, well, you can change customs. You can move to another country, you can start another family. Or you just recognize, well, that's just how I was raised, but that doesn't mean it was right. Or you do the calculation, and when you do calculations and you do the cost-benefits analysis, sometimes you just kind of figure, on this occasion, maybe I should lie. On this occasion, maybe I shouldn't keep my promise because it really would benefit me. And frankly, I hate religion, honestly. The religious approach is the worst because eventually people wake up and they recognize, why would I care about a God who could care less about me? I know he's going to punish me in the end and everything but why would I sacrifice the rest of my life for a God who could care less about me? And then they quit. All of these things maybe contribute to doing what's right. As Christians, though, here's the bottom line. It's not because I was raised right. It's not because I did the cost-benefits analysis. And it's not because I'm just terrified by, by God who's out to get me. You know why I do what I do and why Paul says you should do what you do? You've seen something. Therefore, I urge you in view of what? God's mercy. Have you seen God's mercy? Do you believe what you're seeing? If you believe what you're seeing, you will trust. And you'll trust wholeheartedly without reservation that God wants to bless all of you. And that's why without reservation, you put all of you on the altar as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Because you've seen something. Here's what you've seen. You've seen a God who first served you. You've seen a God who has first loved you. You you saw a God who put himself on the altar for you. Only when God in Christ Jesus put himself on the altar for you, here's what happened. He became a destroyed sacrifice. Why was he utterly destroyed? Because he loves you. And that's why we know we can trust him. That's why we know he's ultimately wise. That's why we know he's completely loving. That's why we know he holds nothing back from us because he held back not even his own son. And he was utterly destroyed on the altar. And in response to that, it's only reasonable that we would offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is why the the King James, by the way, is the best translation of the word. Logikos, some translations, they do it like spiritual act of worship or whatever. The word means logical. Logikos, logical, reasonable. The only reasonable response you can have to an almighty God who put himself on the altar and emptied himself for your benefit is to put yourself on the altar in response. God who is everything puts himself on the altar for us and falls into nothingness. We who are nothing in comparison to the God who is everything put ourselves on the altar and we fall into the everything that was his life. If you see his mercy and you believe in his mercy, Paul is exactly right. You will offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. You will spend the rest of your life in utter obedience, in thanksgiving for the life that he has given. If you don't offer your body as a living sacrifice, if you're holding something back, you either have not seen his mercy or you're not believing what you're seeing. But it's entirely reasonable. In other words, if you see his mercy and you believe in his mercy, then to not respond in an entire lifelong gratitude is not only immoral, because look at the incredible gift he's given, and then to reject it. That just seems immoral. It's not just immoral. It's dumb. It's as intellectually senseless as it is immoral to see his mercy, to believe his mercy, and then to reject it. So are you seeing his mercy? Do you believe it? Paul says if you do, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. And when that happens, here's what else happens. When that happens, not only do you experience resurrection in your life, but here's what else happens. Other people notice it. As Christians, we live different sort of lives on a different sort of altar in response to a a very different sort of God. And when you're living a different sort of life, other people notice. Let me give you an illustration of this, and then we'll be done. We're going to get out early. Don't get used to it. Next year is going to be different, okay? But we're going to get out early. So let me just give you this one illustration. I love this story, true story. Uh, October 2nd, 2006, terrible moment in this community in Pennsylvania. New Minds, Pennsylvania, Amish community. Here's what happened. Early in the morning, a local milkman, Charles Carl Roberts, barricaded himself inside this school. And when he barricaded himself inside the school, he had three guns, three knives, and 600 rounds of ammunition. I don't know if y'all remember this. This is several years ago. This is before school shootings happened every month. So it was remarkable. And everybody heard about it. And before the police could respond, within, within half an hour, he'd already shot 11 girls all under the age of 14, 13 years old and younger. Shot 11 of them, five were killed, and after this moment of brutality, he turned his weapon on himself and committed suicide. Now, the nation hears about this, and they're all shocked, but then as the days follow, more information comes out about the event. And another story emerges. It's a story of courage and faith and love, Here's the story. According to eyewitnesses, at least two eyewitnesses, a couple of girls who were shot but survived, they said that when uh, Marie Fisher, 13, the oldest of the girls, when she discovered what she thought he was intending to do, she made this request. She said, shoot me first and leave the other girls go. Now, I think Marie was, was believing that if she offered her life as a sacrifice, Maybe the gunman would let the other ones live or at least buy enough time for rescuers to come and save the day. After Marie Fisher made that request, shoot me first, her little sister Barbie made another request, shoot me second. Now, I don't know. When word got out about that, millions of people were moved by the story of courage and of faith and and love. But there's actually more to the story. Rita Rhodes, who was a local midwife and a friend of the family and who knew both of the girls personally, she said that that when the gunman heard the girls make this request, shoot me first, shoot me second, he asked those two girls to pray for him. And she said, I think that's amazing that in the midst of his mental confusion, he still noticed they had something different that he needed. Now, here's the truth about you and the truth about me. That is, if we know Jesus. If you you see his mercy and you believe what you're seeing, here's the truth about you. You have something that other people need. You know what they need? They need a God who's so good and who's so gracious and who's so merciful that the only reasonable response to this God is to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. They need a God who's so great, so good, so merciful, that a lifelong commitment to him is the only appropriate way to say thanks. They need that kind of God. Are they noticing it? Okay, so here's my question. Do do you believe in God's mercy? You you don't have to say anything out loud. I'm just asking, do you you believe in God's mercy? Okay, good. Well, okay, great. Well, you didn't have to say that out loud. There's one of us. Thank you. You, Do you believe in his mercy? Do you see it? Do you believe it? If you see it and you believe it, let me just urge you to do something. I'm not challenging you to do something because whenever I say, like, I challenge you, it's like, I'm up here and you need to step up with me or whatever, that's not how Paul does it. He doesn't say, I command you. He doesn't say, I challenge you or bow up or get with the program. Here's what he says. I urge you if you if you see his mercy and you believe it then present your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to him. He wants to rule all of you because he wants to bless all of you. Let's bow forward to prayer. God you're good and uh, we We know that, we believe that, but sometimes it's kind of painful to acknowledge it because it's not natural to us in our flesh and it's certainly not in keeping with with the culture of which we're a part. But Lord, if we are seeing your mercy, if we're seeing you who had everything emptying yourself and becoming nothing so that we would have everything that you deserve, the only appropriate response is yieldedness. And some of us, we're making decisions for the next year concerning our, our minds, our bodies, our relationships. And we're not looking, first and foremost, to your mercy. Help us first and foremost in the year to come and every day to see your mercy and to respond appropriately. Sacrificial living is still sacrificial, it's still painful. But if we see what it is that we claim to see and we believe it, then the only reasonable response is to yield to you wholeheartedly without reservation in our marriages, in our dating relationships, in our businesses, in our friendships, in our finances, in everything. So, Lord, help us to yield, not simply because that's the way we were raised or because it even makes sense to us. Help us not to do that because we think you're out to get us. Lord, we just pray that in the year to come, the cross of Jesus Christ and all the beautiful implications of it will sink down deep into our hearts, that our lives would be transformed and that others around us will be transformed as well. Lord, I thank you for this church body and the many people here who live those sacrificial lives. Father, may they be encouraged. May we continue together as members of one body to live sacrificial lives that the world would see a beautiful, trustworthy, faithful God. And we pray that this morning in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You stand as we continue in worship. I'll be here at the front to talk with you and pray with you about whatever the Lord's laid on your heart. Maybe it's something unrelated to this morning's message. You just want prayer. But you remain open to God and to his spirit as we continue and then close in worship. Come on.